Uh, I mentioned this a little bit last time when I spoke uh, this, uh, this spring here. The prophecy in the Bible is more than prediction. It's not merely a prognostication. Now, that's a kind of a fancy word, but you know, that's what weathermen do. They prognosticate. They get it right much of the time. So it's not that way with God. When He says something there, we believe it to be true and it will be accurate, although we don't always understand it. And that's why we sometimes wonder if it came true or not or if it yet in the future. Um, rather than God's prophets and His Old Testament Word, uh, uh, rather than a prognostication, it's a prescription. It's, he prescribes, He declares what's going to happen in the future. In response to the rebellion of humans in the Garden of Eden, instigated by Satan, that old serpent, he didn't just predict, but he sovereignly declared what would happen hundreds of years before in the Old Testament. Some prophecies are very direct. Uh, other prophecies anticipate patterns in God's sovereign plan to provide salvation through His Son, the Messiah. So that's the big picture today that we're going to talk about in a moment. It's patterns in God's sovereign plan of salvation. Now the intro is Matthew's usage of the Old Testament. I made brief reference to that in our last lecture. But uh, Matthew is saturated with Old Testament quotations. Uh, let me might also say, yes, I've read a, a, a firm, uh, Brother Dan Childs here, he mentioned, was mentioned a while ago, but Dan, good to see you again today. I don't want uh, to leave you, leave you out. It's been a while I've seen you as well. So anyway, uh, uh, back to uh, Matthew, okay? Matthew's quotations. He's saturated... Um, with the Old Testament. Uh, estimates differ, maybe 48, maybe 55, maybe 65, or some of the estimates on the quotations of the Old Testament by Matthew. Now, Matthew's 28 chapters, but that's quite a significant uh, impact. And you can see that from our reading today, where over and over again it says this is to fulfill what was written in the prophets or in the Scripture. All right. Um, now, a particular interest is the 11 or 12 quotations that have what we call a formula citation, meaning that this is like we saw today, to fulfill what was on the prophet. That was just written, that was just declared uh, in the Old Testament. So we have that more than any other place. I think it even may be uniquely to Matthew, but anyway, Matthew does emphasize that uh, aspect. So that's one reason I wanted to deal with Matthew. So you might be asking, why are we doing with a Christmas passage in April. Well, my excuse is that every day with Jesus is Christmas Day, right? Sweeter than the day before. That's the only thing I can come up with. Well, no, the, real, the reality is because we're talking about God's sovereign plan in the Scriptures in the thread of the Old Testament how it links to the New Testament and it is launched in our first book of the New Testament. All right, um, now, because these texts that we're talking about that are introduced by to fulfill what the prophet said or in order that it might be fulfilled and other kind of variants on that, they generally agree with the Hebrew Masoretic text. If all you have to remember there is that it agrees with the text that we have today, essentially. Well, uh, in, in that case, rather than the Septuagint, see like in the book of Hebrews, it, it tends to agree with the Greek version of Septuagint. And so it's common to, to seek a close connection between these 11 or 12 formula citations and the method that they practice at Qumran. Now Qumran 
It's one of the locations for the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the main location of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's all that means. There was a community that lived nearby. We believe there's a connection because the scrolls were found right there next to their community. But they had, there was a commentary found there, for example, from Habakkuk. And it commented on the first two chapters. And so, that's uh, in Aramaic, Pesher means air, uh, commentary. So you'll sometimes read about a Pesher method that was practiced at that time. And then a little later on, there's the rabbinic methods. And so some have, have thought that some of the differences between when Matthew quoted the Old Testament, even though it's close to the Hebrew at times, he may take some liberties. Maybe that's kind of like a commentary fashion or other rabbinic styles of study. So I don't want to get off onto that in detail, but that's a part of the background of studying the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Alright, so quite significant among this uh, is a cluster of four formula citations that we saw today in our reading from Matthew 2. You know, that's part of that responsive reading where we said it's fulfilled according to the Old Testament. These are formula citations here. Cluster of four. What were they? The visit of the Magi, quoting Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. The escape to Egypt that we read more in depth in Hosea 11. The slaughter of the children that refers back to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And well, the, probably the most mysterious one is the settlement in Nazareth quoting what is either an unidentifiable Old Testament generation or what we call a general substance citation which is kind of like everybody knows about that without getting a, a, a direct quote. All right, um, and that's the one, you know, he shall be called a Nazarene. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So, besides the uh, responsive reading there, I guess it's on the back. I didn't look, look but I'm pretty sure it was placed on the back. What, at the bottom, I've written Bratcher. That's the UBS resource that summarizes, um, that whole volume summarizes the Old Testament and New Testament quotes. Even though it's used in a, I can't remember if it's a revised version or whatever, it's not a modern version but she'll get, gives you the picture there beginning with you know the first one is chapter 1 the very famous passage about the prophecy of the virgin birth and then we have those four formula citations that we're talking about you follow what I'm trying to say there beginning with chapter 2 6 uh, you Bethlehem land of Judah and then Micah 5 2 it shows that connection so I think it should be fairly obviously obvious that connection so we're talking about as you may realize here these four uh, clusters here and how that helps us to understand the way that Matthew writing under inspiration is utilizing those for his message okay the, the prominence of the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 2 has made, led many to conclude that Matthew embellished his Old Testament quotations just as many of the stories of great teachers of Israel tended to elaborate and use grandiose terms to exaggerate what they were teaching. The effect of such was to be labeled him as an imaginative constructions based on general Old Testament motifs and text. And they would be, as it were, pious fictions. That's not the term that they use, but well, maybe they use that term. But anyway, I think that's a... I don't think they would admit that about themselves, but anyway, that's they're saying that the, the Old Testament is says one thing, and, and Matthew says, "Well, let's just you know use a little sermonic language, you know, <laughs> exaggeration and a pious fiction." You know, Gundry uh, has several works on that where he talks about that. Um, 
can't remember his first, it's not Stanley Gundry, but you remember Dr. Holloway put him on the spot. You remember Gundry, what his first name is? That's all right. Oh, you got to remember Gundry, okay? Yeah. He wrote his doctoral dissertation back in 67 on that. He has a commentary, the New Testament introduction. That's the same guy we're talking about. So I don't think it's Stanley. That's why I wanted to dis difference. I, I, I misquoted that. I shouldn't have got run that rabbit trail. See? In class, I can blame somebody you used for running the rabbit trail. I have to blame myself today. All right. So what we're talking about, back to the more serious thing. We're talking about the idea that people think that, uh, that Matthew is in error. That he's using his imaginative reconstruction. And so therefore, it, it, it puts a, a damper on our evangelical view of, of the inerrancy of Scripture. And we're saying, you know, that he, he is not... Um, it's not consistent with the Old Testament. So let's talk about some test cases here. So we're trying to combine an academic type of thing today with, with more practical things. But I think this is very practical. You might think that you know, it's boring here to think about this Old Testament's fulfilled here. But think with me here. When hundreds of years before in the prophets it says this and then hundreds of years later it's fulfilled, that's a significant thing, is it not? I think most of us realize that, but uh, uh, sometimes I've gotten some feedback when I've discussed this, and people would say, "Well, all you talk about is the Old Testament here is fulfilled here." I said, "Well, maybe I need to be more clear about that. That speaks of God's sovereign work. That speaks of His plan that He has that runs through the Scripture, and it is significant. It may not seem to be practical, but it is, I think, a practical consideration." All right. So, test case number one. Matthew's use of Micah chapter 5 in verses 5 and 6 here. Now this is fairly straightforward since most agree it's a direct prophecy or prediction, even though I don't uh, like that term prediction because I said before, that sounds like, you know, this dates me, some of you may have heard of back in the medieval period, no, not that far back, Gene Dixon, you know, the astrologer who's, who predicted the death of JFK well I don't talk about all the hundreds of things she said that didn't come to pass right all right so that's a, that's a prediction that's why I prefer the prophecy because prophecies are true these are not get this is not guesses right all right so we're looking at this is a straightforward prophecy however even at looking at that there seems to be some un unwarranted changes to the Old Testament text but when the scholars look at it more carefully from an unbiased standpoint, these changes are not inconsistent with the original meaning. Uh, without getting off into detail here, I mentioned to you Gleason Archer's book that he wrote with another person that deals with the Hebrew and Greek text, which is kind of like a more academic version of the book by Bratcher because it gets into the Greek and Hebrew and there's analysis, but you get into the commentaries and so forth. There are changes there, but if you look at the one by Bratcher, on chapter 2 verse 6 some of the things that are in italics some of the things that are underlined will be differences between uh, the New Testament and on the left and the Old Testament on the right and there's about three or four main changes there that I tried to summarize for you first of all the land of Judah see on the left in the New Testament it says Bethlehem land of Judah on the right thou Bethlehem Ephrathah well there's a change alright um, of course, Bethlehem Ephratah is to be more specific because there were two Bethlehems. There was a Bethlehem in the north, there was a Bethlehem in the south. So this is Bethlehem Ephratah, not the one in the north. It's the more well-known one in the south. 
Okay? And then the second change is reversing Bethlehem's insignificance to by no means least. Now, you've got differences in translation here, but on the left-hand side is in no wise least. That is, by no means least among the princes of Judah. That's a New Testament interpretation of that. Well, when it was written there, David had been born there and was very famous. Back in the Old Testament, when it was first mentioned, like in Joshua's time, and you look and read almost in vain. I looked over it last night to try to check it, but I didn't see Bethlehem mentioned in Joshua 15 where it mentions all the towns in Judah. It's just such a small, in, insignificant hamlet, we'd say. Insignificant little village. You know, we say you blink your eyes and you, you don't realize you went through the road there. Because they were driving, they were walking, so I guess <laughs> it would have to be pretty small if they blinked their eyes, right? But anyway, you get the point. It was not mentioned in Joshua 15. Now, of course, later on, uh, David would be born there, so it began to uh, become, become significant. So in the New Testament, it had become now a point of significance. So there's a change there, but it's consistent with the message that's, that's going on here. All right, the third thing is uh, substituting God's charge to David, who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people, for the last words of Micah 4.2, whose origins are from old, from eternity. Okay, and the, in this translation, it's a little different, but I think I think you get the point. And then the other other difference, number four, is that Matthew's has the rulers of Judah. Okay, they're in uh, the princes in this translation or rulers of Judah. That's in the second second line. Whereas in Micah five two, who are um, among the thousands of Judah, the word thousands are clans. Okay, this kind of goes back to. Uh, those of you have an Old Testament class, we talked about the large numbers in, in Exodus. And we believe what the Bible says to be true, but sometimes you wonder if those large numbers were mistakes in there, not in the original manuscript, we'll make that very clear, but in the copying later on. Because the spelling of the Hebrew word for thousand with the different vowels can be translated clan or family or something like that. So sometimes there's that judgment call. So here's that's a possibility to explain that. That there's uh, the textual difference between the two is actually very minimal, depending on the vowel pointing uh, that we choose. So there's really not any error there. All right. So moving on from a little bit more academic to something a little bit further here. Um, so we're saying that we don't think that that is anything to say that Matthew made a change. He was just adapting that to his audience. Okay, but he's still writing under inspiration. Is still consistent with the Old Testament. Now test case number two which is the main focus today, Matthew's use of Hosea 11, 1, Matthew 2, 15. Now we have a different kind of problem. It's not a textual one. There's no alteration in wording from the Hebrew, although interestingly there is from the Septuagint. Septuagint reads, Out of Egypt I summon his children. Now I said sons or children, but it's literally children. Well, see that is a substantial difference, but that's not what he quotes. He quotes from the Hebrew text. Uh, but in the fulfillment, that's where the problem comes into play, the potential problem, is it seem to be unwarranted liberties with the Old Testament context. Now we read that a while ago, you know, Hosea 11, 1, out of Egypt I call my son. He wasn't talking about Messiah there, was he? Now I know that's debatable, but because uh, well, the Bible says it. Well, <laughs> we got to differentiate between a direct, you know, comparing apples with apples and oranges with oranges type of thing with the intent. And the intent here 
I think it's something beyond that. We're, we're, as we talk about this pattern, we're going to talk about patterns. You don't have to accept this theory, uh, but I think it's got some good evidence if you'll open your mind to it. Okay, so the, uh, in the fulfillment, it seems like that unwarranted liberties are taken with the Old Testament because in the Old Testament context, at least initially, uh, he's talking about the nation of Israel, right? He's talking about Israel, calling Israel out of Egypt. So did he abuse the meaning and the context there? That's what's been discussed. Why does he quote Hosea 11.1 1, when the Holy Family goes into Egypt instead of coming out of Egypt? Did you catch that? That's kind of interesting. It's ironic. Uh, is Hosea 11.1 1 a prophecy or in any sense a prediction of the event that overtook Joseph, Mary, and Joseph? Uh, is it just an analogy or what is it there? And thirdly, what is the significance of the fulfillment formula and what is the purpose? Okay, so the basic issue is talking about did he abuse the context? Okay, I've, if you do hear a summary of um, Walter Kaiser's input on this and Greg Beal's information on this, two of the uh, best scholars on the subject. So I think they both have a significant argument here, even though they don't cite the same evidence, it comes to the same conclusion. And that is, both Israel and the infant Jesus were objects of God's love and deliverance in the face of an oppressor. As Kaiser argues, I think, very strongly, uh, he didn't quote a proof text that's out of context, but he, he uh, cited, uh, we assume, a larger context. Now, C.H. Dodd has this New Testament theory that when there's an Old Testament quote, that the larger context is considered. And some have even suggested there was a actually list of citations that included some larger context there. But whether we accept that or not, it's consistent with that concept. And I mentioned what to do last time when I spoke that the New Testament writers were so saturated in the scriptures and their audience, by and large, are exceptions when they're dealing with Gentiles or something, but Matthew dealing with the Jewish context, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. You know, scribes and Pharisees, even though they were inwardly full of dead men bones, could quote that while they were going to sleep. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, so he said it's obvious here. He wouldn't have to quote but just a little snippet of that, right? A little section of that. And they would immediately understand the context and the background. So instead of interrupting the flow of his argument with a lengthy, lengthy digression, uh, inciting Hosea 11.1, 1, um, he, he is anticipating the whole larger context. Now, I didn't have time to put this here or talk to you about the whole larger context, but in chapter 4, in chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea, you've, you're probably familiar with that famous story where Hosea marries Gomer, and you have the analogy and the picture that that exemplifies God's love for Israel. When you move to chapter 4 through 12, that's the message that he has. And the message he has there is predicated on chapter 4, 1, 2, and 3, how you've broken the laws of God. He mentions five of the Ten Commandments, you've broken those laws. He says you have not had love. You have not had faithfulness. You have not... Uh, these things you have not done. And, you know, the, the names of the children that were born, you know, uh, uh, Jezreel, that stands for God will... So you, it can either be positive or negative. At first it's going to be negative because you have, it's going to scatter you in Jezreel. The idea of, the, of Jezreel means to scatter. It can be scatter, like scattering seed, broadcasting seed. And so it can either be that you're broadcasting in a positive way or you can scatter them into the, the four winds like that. And so that's Jezreel. Well, the other names too, like Lo Ruchamah, that's your no compassion, the daughter. I you like to have 
the head African name. No compassion. The symbolism there is that God would have no compassion because they had relations. Anyway, long story short, the rest of that, those sermons talk about God's judgment to a large extent. God's judgment. That he'll have no compassion because he had compassion upon them. He took them out of Egypt. He, he blessed them, but yet they did not reciprocate. They were, their, their love was fickle. That's what that word chapter 6 means. They were, the Hebrew word chesed, which means loyal love, unfailing love, all that love. They did not have that. They had sacrifices. He said, I don't want that. No, he didn't mean he didn't want to totally. He says, I want uh, the proper relationship. Long story short, at the end of each of those sections where he addresses the indictments, the court case he has against them, he says, despite that, I'm going, there's going to be hope for the remnant. There's going to be a blessing for the remnant. Chapter 11 is that end of that long section there where he talks about uh, uh, Hosea 11, I think it's chapter 9 or 10, that they sowed to the wind, they'll reap the whirlwind type of passage there. And so there's, that's the scattering. But at the end of each is the one, he implies that if you repent, that I will bring blessing. And that's in chapter 11. When the, there was read a while ago about uh, Adma and Zeboim, those are not household words, right? But if he said, I'm not treat you like Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody would understand, right? These people were academic scholars. They knew that it was Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim that were destroyed. And so that was a reference there that we would think of as I'm not going to, you deserve to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Judgment. And unfortunately our country is in the same thing. I'll get off on a tangent on that, but we could talk for the next hour, hour or two about that, right? But despite that you did that judgment, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to bring you out of Egypt again. I brought you out of Egypt, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt again. Kind of like a second Egypt idea. Alright, so that's a little bit of my tangent here. Back to what he's arguing here that despite those sharp words of judgment, he emphasized God's love and the preservation of his son Israel. And that's the same thing he sees as a common denominator. Greg Beal, in the larger context of Hosea, Hosea 3, 5, uh, it says, Afterward the sons of Israel will return, seek the Lord their God, and David their king. They'll come trembling to the Lord in the last days. There's an individual of, of an individual king. And the image of trembling there in 3, 5 is the same word used twice in the passage it was read in Hosea 11, 10 and 11 where it talks about coming trembling back out of Egypt. So we get some connection there with chapter 3, which is in the first part of chapters 1 to 3, and at the very end where he's tying up in a little knot there this idea that you deserve judgment but I'm going to bring compassion just like I brought you out of Egypt I'm bringing you out again. Alright, so there's that parallelism. And then secondly, the idea of my son. You know, out of Egypt I call my son. Originally it's talking about Israel. The first time that Israel was called my son was in Exodus chapter 4, 22 and 23. That's when Moses was talking with Pharaoh and he, was, he is giving the message from the Lord to Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh didn't even know who Yahweh was. And, and the Lord said through Moses, uh, I want you to let my son go. You know, go three days in the wilderness, whatever. And you know, in that larger context, Pharaoh says, well, you know, I don't even know who you are. I'm, I'm a God. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And then through Moses, he said there, if you don't let my son go, and you won't, you'll refuse, 
because you've refused, I will kill your firstborn son. And so we go through all the plagues and to do that. So the, the term my son becomes a technical term of significance. And it's also the, an individual son can represent the whole nation. We call that corporate solidarity or corporate identity in, in the Hebrew terms. Okay, it can be represented in the one and by the one. And then later, how about 2 Samuel 7, 14? You remember that situation if you're familiar with the Old Testament? Um, uh, chapter 7 is the Davidic covenant. You know, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. No, you're a man of war. You can't build a house for me, but I'll build a household, a house for you. I'll, call, I'll be a father to you and you'll be a son to me. So initially fulfilling Solomon and through the Judaic, Judaic line of Judah, but ultimately the son of David, the greater son of David, there's that fulfillment. And then eventually in Psalm 2, 7, Messianic Psalm quoted several times in the New Testament. Today I begotten thee. You're my son. Psalm 2 7. Quoted sometimes in the New Testament to the ascension of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ. That's the, the deeper application. But Psalm 2 was the Davidic king. Traditionally understood as being like a coronation of the Davidic ruler. And so there's David, David's line, and then ultimately the greater David. So Jesus sums up as the representative person of the faithful remnant. See, Jesus was the Israelite indeed. You know, that wasn't originally uh, quoted, I think, about him. All right, so let's move into a more of a kind of a sermonic picture here. All right. In the context of Matthew, we've already mentioned he has a Jewish audience, right? That's a, the sermon, Patterns in God's Sovereign Plan of Salvation. That's what I'm talking about here. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham. Chapter 1, 1, and 2. Back to Abraham. He also said, Son of David. Verse 6. So twice in the first six verses, descendant of Abraham, that's his Jewish identity, descendant of David. He's a king. He's a ruler. They wanted a king. The king is coming. That's, uh, and so, how does he explain that further? In chapter, well even announcing that to uh, Joseph. You know, Joseph's dream. He said Joseph was the son of David. The lineage of genealogy of uh, Matthew's tradition understood to be Joseph's genealogy. The legal genealogy. There's the Davidic uh, line there. But in chapter 2 that we looked at, verse 6, Bethlehem of the land of Judah. So, where was the king supposed to be born if you're going to be like David? Well, logically, Bethlehem. So that's where he was born. Alright, so this is part of God's providential plan. His coming was prophesied many times as we've been talking about here. And it's part of an analogy or pattern that we see here in, in Exodus chapter 4 where he told Abraham, I mean, excuse me, he told Pharaoh to let his people go. But you see, this is given with a heightened meaning in uh, Matthew 2.15. This is what we mean by typology. There's been debates about what includes typology and what does not, but typology is a foreshadowing, but in that foreshadowing typically there is a heightening. Sometimes it's called an escalation, where it's even more. It's similar to a, a fortiori argument. And I'm sure you're all familiar with that. But you really should be if you're in seminary about the way that the author of Hebrews says, because you know Moses was great, but how much more is Christ greater? That's an a fortiori argument, from the lesser to the greater. And so here in the Old Testament, as, as great as Abraham was, you know, as great as Moses was, we have Christ is greater. Alright, so that's a heightening of the typology. So when God the Father called His Son out of Egypt, 
It was analogous to his calling Israel out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. But why in the reverse direction? You know, a while ago, we look at Matthew 2.15, that's when they were uh, going to Egypt and not coming out. If you put it down to verse 22, then that would be more logical to us because that would be them coming back. But he, he doesn't do that. So Kaiser argues, interestingly, that the reason is that this is not the main point. Instead, the emphasis falls exactly what it did in, uh, in Hosea's context, and that's the preserving love of God for his seed, his descendants, Israel. What was in one sense incomplete is now filled up or brought to a complex. I'm assuming not complex, but climax. Uh, several analogies are evident between Jesus and Israel. I'm sure if you've studied Matthew very long, you'll see that. Both were in exile in Egypt. Both were the objects of God's love. Both were delivered. Both came out of Egypt. Both passed through the waters, the waters of the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, baptismal waters, Matthew 3. Both were tested in the wilderness, Israel for 40 days, 40 years. Matthew chapter 4, for 40 days, he was hungry, tested by the Lord. In both cases, the multitudes were fed with manna. Jesus talked about that. Matthew 14, you know, Moses only gave you manna for heaven. I gave you heavenly bread comes down. And so he talked, even in that, it's a comparison, but it's an escalation. It's even how much more the Lord was a fulfillment of the new Moses. As a new Moses. All right? He's a new Israel as well. From these parallels, I think it should be evident that he is an ideal Israel. His experience was an enlargement of the experience of a nation. Now here's where we get into a debatable statement here. Some would say because of that, that means there's no future for Israel. I don't think that that's necessary uh, logic on that. that. I believe that we can still have a future for Israel without him being the few. The, he's indeed the embodiment of Israel. When Israel failed, he succeeded. And through Christ, they, they have that same relationship here during our church age. But I don't think that that revokes the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. I think the, he said in, uh, two in, in, uh, irrevocable things that God does not lie. God keeps his promises. There's two places in the New Testament uh, that he talks about that. So anyway, that's an aside for another time. So God, though, whatever you feel, that God has a sovereign plan for the nation of Israel, he has a sovereign plan for individuals in, in Christ through the Lord Jesus. Now, now the immediate context after the birth of the Christ child here in Matthew 2, as you're all familiar, familiar with, is the hideous plan of Satan to use Herod to kill all the boy babies. We all know about that, right? And we're probably aware of this other, we may or may not have made the connection that... Um, Pharaoh, what did he try to do? Kill all the boy babies, didn't he? All right. So in the Old Testament, God had a sovereign plan, and Satan was trying to counteract that, but he did not succeed. In the New Testament, through Christ, Herod tried to kill all the boy babies, but he did not succeed because God has a sovereign plan. So one of the things I want us to emphasize today is that God has a sovereign plan, and we need to get with this program, right? Because though Satan may try and may think, seem like there's a defeat going on, there is the battle has been won through Christ and that God's sovereignly in control there. Alright, so uh, they were warned in a dream to leave for Egypt and um, this is in order to fulfill that pattern we talked about. But let's talk about test case number three. This is Jeremiah 31 and Matthew 2. Uh, we've been talking about the wicked plan. It was carried out to kill all the boy babies there. Just like in the Old Testament. And then Jeremiah 31 is a less known passage. Maybe the only reason that you know that is because you've read through here and kind of looked at the 
cross-reference and say, oh, Jeremiah, yeah, I've heard that. But Jeremiah's situation over there, this seems to be another place where he's taking some liberties with the context. Because Jeremiah 31 was on the eve of the Babylonian captivity. Remember the Babylonian captivity, the second captivity. And Rama, 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 is the place where the holding place where they were held as they were getting ready to embark to Babylon. Jeremiah was given a choice to remain or to go. Other people didn't give much of a choice and they were gone. gone. And many were killed. And so there's a picture of Rachel. Now Rachel wasn't still alive in 586 B.C. At least not that Rachel, right? So it's a, it's a personic personification or an emblem of Rachel weeping for her children. So the analogy, there's an analogy or typology here, the similarity between uh, the weeping that the nation, because she represents the nation, you know, it's the favorite wife of, of, of Jacob, right? So the, the favorite wife represented the, the whole there, and uh, this was just north of Jerusalem. The parallel of the situation that were both were being slaughtered at the hands of Gentiles or non-Jews. Rachel's tomb was near Bethlehem and Rachel was considered to be the mother of a nation. That's why she's weeping over these children's death. Both Israel and in the Old Testament and New Testament were weeping because of oppression. So most would agree this is not a direct prediction but it's another analogy. A typological pattern and part of God's sovereign plan. And it's debated. Did Jeremiah know about it? I don't think he understood that. I don't think he knew that. But the New Testament writer knew what God intended here, that not only was this hope recovered. If you read Jeremiah 31 down to 17, he'll say there's hope for the future. Well, that didn't look like it back then. But there was, that's clearly a prophecy. There's hope for the future. And here, it didn't look like this, this is going to go. But we've read the end of the story, right? We know that there was hope for their future. But there's, the thing that we can't see is there's hope for our future. Right? There's hope for our future because of God's sovereign plan. All right. There's two more dreams and then eventually the, the dream was don't go back because wicked Archelaus Laos is there, the, the, another wicked son. So do not remain there but go to the north. Okay, this leads us to another, I'll call this quasi-test case number four. This may be a general fulfillment or an echo. Last time, I won't have time to get into that, we talked about... Uh, prophecies and illusions and echoes. Whatever you call it, it's a mystery here because there's no quotation. You can look far and wide. So in the, in the Bratcher, uh, Bratcher's little chart has summarized some of the views. You can look that maybe a little bit later. But uh, note number four talks about some of the views here. And I've discussed, I think, part of them here in the outline. So just keep, keep with where you are looking there. Uh, the term Nazarene and Nazarite are kind of similar, but they're spelled differently in English, although some don't make that distinction. Judges 13 talks about how that Samson would be born and become would be a Nazarite. Okay? So that's something that there's that reference. The word Nazir there means consecrated or separated like a Nazarite. It also could be a consecration of a high priest, so it's kind of interesting there, but that's not what normal people normally say. And the second idea would be from uh, Isaiah 11.1 1, where there's another word, uh, Netzer, a different middle letter in Hebrew. If you, have, if you know Hebrew there, you see there's a different middle letter. Uh, and that has to do with a branch or a root or uh, even a, of a crown. Like it's, uh, 
well, a branch or a root, and even a crown uh, sometimes. So they're spelled differently, but so that's why it's confusion. But I kind of think that there that this may be a pun or a play on words. John 1:46. Remember what they said when they told him it was from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it was a term of rebuke. It's like living on the other side of the tracks. That's living in uh, the wrong place there. And so um, the Nazarene became a term of contempt. Acts 24 verse 5. Paul. You know, they typically want to compliment Paul. They called him one of the leaders of the sect of the, of the Nazarenes, right? That was not a compliment. That was an insult. Okay? So those who are followers of the Nazarene was a term of insult. But Christ was despised and, and despised for us. Okay, I, I gave you a little example of a pun from here. If you're from Jacksonville, talk to King Fence. You're from Jacksonville? Then you don't know Jack about anything, right? Alright, now... I told Brother Toby I was going to use him as my representative from Mixon because I, I pastor out the Mixon community. So I preached on this. I said, Brother so and so, I'll say, Brother Toby, you're my representative. You're from, you're from Mixon. You look close to Mixon, right? Pretty close. Is that why you're all mixed up? <laughs> so this is the idea of, of a pun. It's a term of contempt, of, dis, of di, uh, a despicable term. Isaiah 52, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was rejected. He was rejected, right? And he identified with. Our, our sin. Okay, going to have to pick it up here. Um, so, in some summary conclusions here, I'm going to talk about a little bit of conclusion application, and I'll sum it up. Um, the ministry of Christ was analogous to that of of God's Old Testament adopt, adopted son in, in the ways that I talked about a while ago. He quoted Hosea 11 1 to show how Jesus, the true Son of God, would undo the continued disobedience of God's adopted son, Israel. Now, in Isaiah chapters 41 to 53, and I certainly don't have time because I'm running over my time just a little bit right now to talk about that. But I believe in Isaiah 42 when the servant was called there, I think that was Israel the servant. That he did not, he was not a light to a Gentile. So in chapter 49, you see it re reiterated. There it's primarily talking about Messiah. He will become a light to the Gentiles. So you have a transition from the focus on Israel. That should have been Isaiah 43. Talks about be my witnesses, not Jehovah's witnesses. That's what it says there. Yahweh's witnesses, <laughs> the witnesses for the Lord. And so uh, they were not that. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were not. So he went and uh, preached it to the Gentiles. Right. All right. So long story short, Jesus did what they were not able to do. But that's not just for the Jewish people, right? None of us did what we were supposed to do, right? To keep the law, to obey. Obey your parents. We all did that right perfectly. Well, so what we could not do, it's not just a mistake, we sinned, rebelled against God, and God through Christ brought the answer. He's our substitute. Okay. So as far as uh, Jeremiah 31 15, hope lay on the other side of the tragedy. I mentioned that a while ago. The comfort that they could not see in the Old Testament, the comfort that they could not see, the Lord says that because of Christ, you know, in the Christmas, excuse me, in the in the Easter season, we all we oftentimes talk about kind of flippantly, but it's a very serious thing that Satan thought he had won the victory on Friday. But remember the old cliche, yeah, but Sunday's coming, and so because there's hope, there's hope in that. But finally, a couple other things. If this were a normal sermon, um, I talk about, you know, do you know the Babe of Bethlehem? Not just in your mind. 
but you know him personally. So we have an opportunity to, to share about the gospel message there. Christ is the new David. Okay? And then, as far as application to believers today, I said to them all ago, uh, nothing Satan can do through wickedness can stop God's plan of salvation. That doesn't mean that we should not be busy of clarifying and explaining and sharing our faith with others. But we can have hope and security because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus. So thank you for your patience here.